All right, so Jeff is uh, continuing on on his, uh, on his uh, passage through uh, Mark this week. And uh, so the reading uh, today is from uh, Mark uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 23 to 28. Um, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. A keen observer will note that in the Summit newsletter on Friday, I said I'd be preaching from Mark 2, verses 23 to chapter 3, verse 6. And at 7 o'clock last night, I looked at my word count, and I was like, nope, that's two sermons. So I split it in half because there's too much stuff, so we're going to have to do verses uh, 1 to th- 6 of chapter 3 next week. But before we do, why don't we stand? It is Valentine's Day. There is a New Testament command. It's a command in the New Testament. Greet each other with a holy kiss. Don't worry, we're not going to do that. We're just going to greet each other. But I thought I'd just throw that out there to scare you a little bit, get the, spike the adrenaline, the heart rate a little bit. So let's take a moment and greet one another in a way that is appropriate. Boundaries, people. Let's go. <laughs> I'm feeling the love. That's good. That's great. Wonderful. Again, I'm going to be looking at Mark chapter 2 this morning. It's a strange story. It doesn't seem really altogether controversial, but as we're going to find out, it really, really is. As we've been moving through the gospel of Mark, we've been exploring this theme that the gospel is an insurrection. The life and ministry of Jesus really shouldn't be categorized as something nice or interesting. It's a force of nature. It overthrows established powers and principalities. Mark is presenting to us a king who is coming to establish his kingdom. Not just any kingdom, this a kingdom of God. And this king is unlike any other king that we've seen in human history. This is a king who uses his power to serve, He uses his authority and his power to bless and to bring healing, to restore, to redeem. But he's also a just king. And this king is confronting the forces of evil in this world, whether in the spiritual realm or man-made. Now, some people might kind of balk at the language of insurrection. They might think that that's kind of hyperbole, but it's it's honestly not. Mark is, as, as Mark's gospel unfolds, 
what we see Jesus doing is Jesus is showing and telling the kingdom. And wherever he goes, whether he's showing the kingdom or he's telling about the kingdom, everybody is being confronted and challenged. Jesus, through his life and teachings, is overthrowing the way things are. Kind of the normal status quo, what, what has come to settle, whether in the religious community or in the irreligious community or the pagan Roman community, wherever Jesus goes and teaches, though he kind of upsets the apple cart. When God's kingdom comes, our kingdom gets pushed out. That's the pattern that we see in Mark. And this effect, uh, and this happens to anybody who encounters Jesus, and actually everybody who encounters Jesus. Ben Witherington III, uh, in a commentary on the, on the book of Mark, he says, wherever Jesus goes, he provokes a crisis of faith. And that's both for religious people and for irreligious people. Jesus' words and deeds cause them to completely reevaluate their worldview. What Jesus does and, and, se- uh, and says forces them to kind of deconstruct everything they presumed about the nature of reality, the nature of God, the nature of God's kingdom, the nature of what it means to be a human being in this world. And one of the evidences that we are encountering Jesus in our own lives today and is that our worldviews, our priorities, our values, the stuff that we just presume to be, well, this is the way it's supposed to be, that every once in a while those get upset, those get overturned, that, that God speaks to us through his word, by his spirit, and we find ourselves challenged. And there's this theme, not every day, maybe not even every month, but consistently of God is doing an insurrection in my own life. He's turning over things that need to be turned over so that God's kingdom can come. And today's, is a, today's text is an awesome example of Jesus provoking a crisis of faith with established religious leaders. It's an encounter between Jesus, his disciples, and a group of Pharisees in a grain field, which you know, f- sounds 2,000 years removed from our context and any sort of relevance, but it's deeply important to everybody who's sitting here today, and it's tremendously relevant. So I'm going to pray this morning before we uh, begin studying the text that we would encounter Jesus. God, we want to encounter you through your word. By your spirit, God, would you work in our hearts? Would you just make straight paths? Whatever crooked paths are there in our heart because of distraction, because of hardness of heart, because of ambivalence towards you, apathy, whatever it is, God, uh, would you just uh, create a straight path through this text this morning so that we can see you, so that we can encounter you, God? We give you permission to overturn whatever you need to overturn in our hearts and in our lives so that your kingdom comes on earth, here in this church, here in our lives, as it is in heaven. Amen. So in this short little account, some Pharisees get really, really upset with Jesus and his disciples because they pick grain on a Saturday. And for us, that hardly seems like a big deal at all. Why are these guys so agitated and upset? Well, they kind of have good reason. In Exodus chapter 20, after God rescues the Israelites from Egypt, takes a group of slaves, a group of nobodies, gets a hold of them, rescues them, he brings them through the desert to a mountain, the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai, and he begins to form them into a nation. He says, you were just a, a ragtag group of nobodies. Your, your, only, your, only, identi- your only identity is as, as slaves. You've been slaves for 400 years 
under the Egyptians. I'm going to turn you into a nation. I'm going to make you a people that understands who I am, understands who they are, and I'm going to teach you how to live. I'm going to teach you how to be the light to the world. And through you, every nation on earth is going to be blessed. Now, where do you start when you want to form a nation? You start with laws. You give laws, which become the literal laws for the nation so that they know right from wrong, they know what this nation is about, what this nation stands for, how this nation is going to form its identity. So God starts by giving them 10 commandments in Exodus 20. And the fourth commandment is this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Clear command. One of the first ten that God establishes. You fast forward to Jesus' day, And to observe the Sabbath, especially from the point of view of the Pharisees who thought the way the kingdom of God is going to come is if we are deeply um, pious and religious and exacting and strict in our interpretation and living out of all the laws of God. So the way that God's kingdom is going to come is if we are faultlessly living out the law perfectly. So observing the Sabbath becomes laden with all these commands and subcommands and commentaries about what constitutes his work and it becomes more and more conservative because no one wants to interfere with the breaking of any commands and uh, rabbi after rabbi and teacher after teacher and religious authority after religious authority keeps layering on these rules in the intention that people would keep the Sabbath but you fast forward to Jesus' time and the Sabbath has become just a tremendous burden. You have these um, church police, these Pharisees who have it you know, marked down to the smallest activity, what is allowed, what isn't, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. And they're upset because Jesus is working on a Saturday, which is the Jewish Sabbath. He's going through grain fields. Him and his disciples are picking grain from someone's field. That's not stealing, that's allowed. Deuteronomy 25 says you're totally allowed to do that. You're not allowed to bring a combine and rip up your neighbor's crops. But if you're hungry, then you're allowed to do that. But the Pharisees, so they're not really concerned about him picking grain, it's he's picking grain on the Sabbath. And that's working, because that's reaping. That's harvesting on the Sabbath. And in Exodus 34, harvesting on the Sabbath is explicitly forbidden. And so the Pharisees say to Jesus, why are they, your disciples, doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? There, this is, the, this is the, one of several confrontations now we've seen with the religious leaders. The religious leaders have heard about Jesus. He's clearly operating with power. He's healing people. He's doing things that are extraordinary. But he also doesn't seem to conform to what a good, pious religious leader would do. He doesn't fast when other people are fasting. The people who he invites into his inner circle, they're not really the right people. They're tax collectors and sinners. He eats with the wrong people. And now he seems to have disregard for one of the most fundamental commands of God, 
Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Don't do any work. You and your disciples are just going through this grain field doing work like it's no big deal. So the religious leaders are having this increased anxiety towards Jesus because, and now, and, and, and this is the thing that Mark begins to allude to. Now we're beginning to see that the religious leaders are questioning where Jesus' power is coming from. Is it from God? Because would a godly leader seemingly act in a way that is, feels very casual toward the law of God? And that's why later on you're going to hear the accusation that it's, it's by the prince of demons that he's doing these things. It's by the power of the enemy that he's actually performing these miracles. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, David entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath, then, then Jesus said to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, in Jesus' day, the religious leader had turned this gift into, into a force of oppression an obligation. And this, what was meant to be something for human beings, the Sabbath given as a gift, had been turned into something that human beings were instituted to fulfill. It was another religious burden. Maybe well-intended, but it had become burdensome, and it hadn't led to a, a depth of life and human flourishing and thriving in people's relationship with God, with, with them, within themselves, uh, you know, other people, and with the creation. See, what Jesus is saying by saying the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, he says the Sabbath was a law from God. God is making a law for his people. And it's a good law, but it's a law that is a gift. It's law as gift. In our context, we tend to think rules and laws are something that oppress and restrict and hold back, restrain from the good life. Jesus says, no, you've got it all wrong. Um, human beings have never been really good at understanding how to attain the good life, so God made some laws to help keep them on those rails, and the Sabbath was one of those laws. This is a law that, yes, you are commanded to do. You, it is demanded of you to not work one day a week, but that was always meant to be a deep source of blessing. God's heart behind the Sabbath, at least two things that lie underneath Jesus' rejection of the Pharisees and their legalistic heart. Number one, he wants them to remember that the Sabbath offers rest and recentering through worship. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. He takes delight. Not because God's tired. He didn't kind of deplete all of his energy sources and need to recharge the way we do. But into the very nature of creation, God set a rhythm of six days of work and then one day to celebrate, to, take, to look at what has been accomplished and to give thanks to the one who allows you to accomplish it, and to rejoice in him, and to enjoy the good things of life. In Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, and so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God created, and then he rested. And that pattern is the pattern that he desires for every single human being, every image bearer. Six days of hard work, one day of hard rest. Work hard, play hard. And that day of rest is both for inner and outer refreshment. 
Some of us sin by doing too much of the former. We're all work and no play. And some of us sin by doing, by kind of neglecting our God-given duty to actually work. That we were, were kind of a lot of play and very, very little work. But the biblical God-honoring pattern is six days of work and one Sabbath day. So Sabbath offers rest and recentering. The Sabbath was made for people so they could experience the good things in life. And number two, Sabbath offers freedom from slavery. This is a really, really important context. This is why understanding the narrative of Scripture is very, very important. In Deuteronomy 5, um, God says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor from all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Okay, that sounds a lot like the, the commandment, basically a reiteration. But God adds this part to it. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. And therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. See, in Egypt, the Israelites were slaves. And one of the defining features of slavery is that it gives you no freedom or rest, inwardly or outwardly. If you work all the time, you are a slave. If you work all the time today, whether it's to please the pharaoh of your own heart that says, I need to do more, I need to produce more, you're a slave to your own desires and heart. If you work all the time because you have a taskmaster, a boss, an employer who's, who demands that in different ways, you're, you're a slave to that person. The inability to stop from working and rest is one of the characteristics of someone living in slavery. God rescues these people and he says, I want you to understand, I do not want you to be slaves. That's the only identity you've known in Egypt. I am rescuing you from that. And every seventh day, you're going to stop from your work, good work that I have for you to do, but you're going to stop and center it on me and on the good things of life and enjoy, pray and play. And you're going to take that day to remember you are not a slave. I don't want you to live like a slave. I'm making you my people, and my people rest. My people recenter on what matters most through worship. You are not a slave. Do you see how this law, this demand of God, through that lens is so liberating? No other nation in the world at that time had anything approximating a Sabbath. For, I mean, for kings and royalties, they, they can Sabbath, they can rest whenever they want. But for everybody? For even animals? For even the land? God says, my people are going to be different. We're, we're not going to treat our animals the same way. We're not, we're not even going to treat our economic system the same way. We are going to be a people that rest. God wants his people to have a regular rhythm of rest and rejuvenation because that's what makes life human. If every day you're just moving through your life and it just feels like one day is the same as the other day and it's just work, 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 and your mind is going, outer, you know, physically you're tired, emotionally you're spent, psychologically you're stretched thin, spiritually you're drained, at that point you're not really a human being. You're just kind of like the walking dead. You're just a husk of a person going through the motions. And God says, you're, that's, a, that's a form of slavery. And I don't want that for anybody who has Yahweh as their God. One of my favorite verses um, 
that I've stumbled upon in the last few years is, is Leviticus 26.13. God is, is telling his people, he's reminding them that he brought them out of Egypt. And he says, uh, Leviticus 26.13, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with heads held high. The translation there isn't quite, it, it's, it's challenging. The idea there is God says, I, you were a slave, you were bent under the yoke, you saw yourself as slaves, you were treated as slaves. What I did is I came in and I grabbed you, I broke that yoke and I said, stand up like a human being. Stand tall, you're not a slave. You have to put to death that self-perception. You've been told that your whole life. Your parents, their parents, their parents, going back 400 years. You've been told this is your identity. That's not true. I'm giving you these laws. I'm making you my people because I'm going to teach you how to stand up straight and walk with dignity and look at other people in the eye. Not as a slave, but as a free people who are now under my rule and reign and authority. Because my yoke doesn't oppress. My yoke empowers and lifts up. God says, you are my precious people and I have a powerful purpose for you. And Sabbath, taking one out of every seven days to rest, that's a hugely important part of learning to walk straight as a human being. To not move through life bent over and weighed down like a slave. Jesus has this great line where he asks them if they remember reading or if they've ever read the account of David. And these are Pharisees. These are people who know the Bible. Um, most of them would have had, I mean, almost every Jewish scholar at this point says most of them would have had the entire thing memorized. Um, so th you know, these are not people who kind of have to Google search. I think somewhere in the Bible it says this. What's that again? They know it. Jesus says, oh, have you never read the story? That's interesting because you're, you're calling us out. But there's a story about David in 1 Samuel 21. And David does something that is against the law. But there's a, there's a higher law, and that is that the Sabbath is ultimately given for, um, for the sustaining life and feeding what is tired and hungry. And David and his companions, if they didn't have this bread, they were in a lot of trouble as David was on the run from Saul. And so God says, or Jesus says, you know, man wasn't given for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given for man. This is supposed to be a source of rest, a source of rejuvenation, a source of life. And then Jesus says these words. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, to our ears, okay, whatever, that, that, that doesn't strike us one way or the other. But that's a huge bomb to drop in the first century. When you think about it through this lens, the Sabbath is one of the most important foundational laws and, and governing principles for creation, but certainly for God's people. Repeated again and again and again. God wants this to happen. The Sabbath was instituted by God himself. It wasn't something that God said, you guys come up with a plan, let me know. They said, hey, we thought of a Sabbath. God said, that's cool. God says, this is what the plan is. You're to obey and live into it. So for Jesus to declare that he is the Lord over the Sabbath, and a Lord is someone who has authority over something else, Jesus is saying the Sabbath, 
that we're talking about, um, its meaning and intention and how we use it and how we view it, yeah, I have the right to determine that moving forward. Like that's, I, I have authority over this. Um, it's, a, it's a not so subtle way of saying to the Pharisees, this is above your pay grade. It's not above mine though. This, this is actually is my gig. I am the Lord over the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath observance is very, very, very important to Pharisees. That's why they're always getting on about stuff happening on the Sabbath. Why is Jesus healing on the Sabbath? So when Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, it's an unmistakable claim to divinity. That's another first century way of saying, of Jesus saying, oh, I'm God. I have authority over the law of God, and I have authority over one of the most important cornerstones of what it means to be the people of God. We're going to find out very soon. There's only one more, one more encounter that happens on a Sabbath, and then we'll talk about that next week. And then Mark, in uh, chapter 3 and verse 6 says, then the Pharisees left and they started plotting with another group on how they were going to kill Jesus. They understand what Jesus is saying. They're not like, oh, this is an interesting new religious leader. This guy is presenting an insurrection to the status quo. He's implicitly claiming I am God, come in human form to set things right, but in setting things right, I'm going to upset a lot of things, including abuses of religious authority, including misunderstandings of the heart of God that have gotten lost over centuries of maybe well-intended, but also legalistic um, rules and regulations and hardships. I'm coming to set things right. So for Jesus to say, I am Lord of the Sabbath, is absolutely a declaration of divinity. But it actually even goes deeper than that. The Sabbath in Hebrew, the word from which we get Sabbath, means to stop. Makes sense, right? Work for six days and then you stop. You Sabbath. It also means to cease. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the ceasing. I'm the Lord of the stopping. Now, what does that mean? I think that's tremendously relevant to you and I today. A lot of people in this room, in this community, in this world, they live without ceasing. They're constantly on the go. And they're not just on the go, they're working. Sometimes literally, they're doing jobs, but other times figuratively, figuratively they're working through different avenues to build their self-worth and their sense of identity and purpose. And people, a lot of people are striving to prove to themselves or to other people that they're worthy of love, that they're a worthwhile human being, that they count, that they matter, that they should be celebrated, that they should be noticed, that they should be worthy of love. And a lot of people are putting forth a tremendous amount of energy in order to justify themselves, to be able to look in the mirror and say, I matter, I I count, I can take pride in who I am, and I um, can rejoice and, 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 um, and delight in, in who I am, and I can receive delight and love from other people. I'm, I'm worthy. See, that's the, one of the primary works. That's one of the primary efforts of every single human heart, my heart, your heart, any, any, anyone's heart. One of the primary works is self-justification. Sometimes we try and self-justify, we justify um, ourselves to ourselves. We, we work so hard because we're trying to 
justify ourselves to our own sense of conscience. Maybe we, we re- reject, we don't care what other people think. We don't even care what God thinks or if there is gods or God or whatever. But like, I know what I think about myself. I know what I think a good life should look like. I know what I think a noble and dignified human being, I know the life that should take. And I'm striving to, to meet my own criteria. I'm working hard to justify myself to myself so I can look at my face in the mirror and say, yeah, I, I did it. I, I am on track. I am a good person. I am doing the right things. Sometimes all that striving is aimed at justifying ourselves before the eyes of other people. And we think, I need to work really hard because if I could live this way, if I could do these things, if I could be consistent in these areas, if I could show these people this, then they would accept me, then they would love me, then he'd ask me out on a date, then she'd say yes, then it would matter, then I would feel good, then I'd be popular, then I'd have what I'm looking for, then I could be worthy. And some people are striving to justify themselves before God. It, it's the same pattern, but it's before God. They just say, if I can live like this, if I could do these things, if I could be you know, more good than bad, if I could kick this habit, if I could build this new habit, then God would accept me. Then I would be loved. Then I could receive from God. Then God would bless me. Then I could rest in, in his love. If I could perform at least to a high level of consistency, then God would re- would reward me. And so whether the goal is justifying ourselves before God or before other people or even in our own eyes, or maybe it's a mix of it, living life like that is just tremendously exhausting. It just, it's very, very exhausting. It will, it'll, it'll take everything you have. And there's no rest in it. There's no rest in living like that because you're always one or a few key mistakes away from disqualifying yourself from love, from that group of people, from God, from yourself. I mean, you might have a great run where for a year or two, you are performing in the way that that group or you feel or God, you think God thinks you need to do in order to receive love and worth and have a sense of dignity, you might have a great run, but what happens when you hit, when you hit that snag and you, the bad habits start forming and then the things that you said you would never do, you start doing and then you start falling and backsliding and, and fracture lines show up. All of your confidence, all of your sense of worth, all of your sense of love, it, get, it just begins to evaporate incredibly quickly. There's no rest in it because if you don't keep performing up to your standard, up to their standard, up to God's standard, then you're sunk. So it's an exhausting way to live because it demands continual striving. You're one wrong move away from losing the love that you've worked so hard to establish. Because the love that you've worked so hard to establish establish is based on your performance and your effort. And so religious people tend to try and justify themselves by good works. I'm going to do these good things so that God and maybe the community around me will see that I'm a worthy and good person. And irreligious people do the same thing. They just use a different set of laws or criteria. Might not even be religious, but irreligious people have a code. They have a sense of, this is what I think it means to be a human being. And they, their sense of self-worth and self-justification comes from them trying to measure up to that. But notice the pattern. It's all self-justification. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or irreligious. The root is the same. 
So many people are just still trying to justify themselves in their own eyes before God or higher values or principles or, between, or before the community. And only Christianity offers other justification. Every other religious system in the world is a mode of self-justification. You justify yourself, and if you do, X, Y, and Z will happen. Only Christianity offers other justification, justification based on something that someone else has done, and that other person is Jesus. In Hebrews 3 and 4, you can read through these um, chapters this week, the author develops this concept where Jesus is our Sabbath rest. And it's kind of weird, especially if we don't understand the Sabbath and how is Jesus our Sabbath rest? And he's going back and forth and talking about all these uh, different elements and these different word pictures. But what he's doing is he's building a case where he says, a relationship with Christ frees human beings from this kind of striving to self-justify ourselves. And because of what Jesus did, it allows you as a human being to rest in the work that Jesus did not rest or have your confidence in your own um, performance. In Hebrews 4, verses 9 and 10, the author says this. In one of the summation passages, uh, sections, he says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rests, rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. The parallel is God worked for six days and then he rested. And the author of Hebrews is saying, it's like that as a Christian. There was a season in our life where we tried to work to earn the approval from ourselves, from other people, from God. And in Christ now, who's done the work, we don't have to live the first six days of the week in your life. You get to live now as if it was Sabbath. You can enter that rest because of what he's done. You can cease from your striving from trying to self-justify yourself. You can just lay that down. You don't have to live that exhausting cycle anymore. The good news is that Jesus did the heavy lifting on your behalf. He did the work that you couldn't do. And he finished what you never could. When he's, when he's dying on the cross in John 19, uh, John records these words. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus did the ultimate work of justifying himself before God and then says, anybody who wants to be justified before God, you can accept the work that I've done. Um, you might not be the strongest student, but Jesus says, I've written the exam, I've aced it, I can give that to you, and you can take credit for me writing your exam. You can go through your life as if you aced that exam. And you, you don't have to live it anymore under the anxiety of, am I going to pass the test? What do I do? Cramming. Um, sleepless nights, depression, anxiety, fear, really feeling high when you are acing the test, but feeling devastatingly low when you, you know you're flunking it. Jesus lived the life you should have lived, and he died the, the death you should have died. And as the perfect sacrifice, he can now justify you, and you can live free and unburdened in him. And that's why he says in Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. I'll provide you with ceasing. I'll allow you to stop. In a world where, whether you know it or not, you're constantly trying to justify your existence to yourself, to other people, or to God. I've done, I've done all the work. Just come to me, 
and I'm going to give you rest. And I'm going to teach you how to live in this world out of that rest, out of that acceptance, out of that love, out of that new center, out of standing up straight, not because I'm so great, but because God is so great that even though I deserve to live as a slave, he loved me and came and died and atoned for my sin and was resurrected, put his spirit in me, and now wants to use me in a new way in this world? And it's not contingent on my performance? That's amazing. That's, that's, I mean, that's an upside-down, right-side-up way to think about things. I believe one of the greatest things we need is rest as human beings from the work, from the toil, from the striving of self-justification. And Jesus offers everybody in this room, everybody in this community, rest from that preoccupation. And through him, you can now begin a new life where you can live from a place of rest and peace knowing that Jesus has justified you and you can step into the life that you've actually been grasping for for your whole life. That is the gospel. And my prayer this morning is that in new and interesting and in powerful ways, we would all go to Jesus and we would encounter him this week as the Lord of the Sabbath. Let's pray. God, as we continue in worship, we give thanks to you for, for your word, God. Thank you that um, through your spirit you made sure that we had these stories, these encounters. They just open up a richness to who you are and what you're doing. God, I pray for hearts that are heavy here under the burden of striving. This might be a lot for people to take in. It's, um, this is kind of deep waters in a lot of ways, God. This touches the innermost places of our hearts, but I pray that your spirit would move in such a way that people would, would really understand the significance of what is going on here, the freedom that is on offer in Christ. Help me to understand that, God. Um, teach us to walk and to live for you out of a place of rest and Sabbath because of what you've done. Not striving in our own, um, in our own strategies and our, in our own devices to kind of secure your love, but to receive it and to live as different people. God, we want you to be the Lord of our lives. And, and this week, would you just orchestrate some encounters and events and resources and people just do something, God, so that we're reminded and we're um, we take another step deeper in terms of experiencing you as the Lord of the Sabbath. And it's in your strong and glorious name that we pray. Amen.